Hello, my name is Pam Johnson and the next talk will be on protocol design in abdominal CT. In this talk I will discuss data acquisition, IV contrast infusion, data reconstruction and display and how each of these parameters is critical to optimizing pro your CT protocols depending on the clinical indication. Starting with data acquisition, most scanners um, of in the current generation provide either submillimeter or in the range of one millimeter detector thickness. The thinner detectors are really critical for vascular imaging because of the additional spa spatial resolution provided. But use of the thinner, thinner detectors actually results in a slightly higher radiation dose to the patient, so they really should be reserved only for indications where really high-resolution imaging is required. And this is a question that I, I use when I quiz my residents. What's the minimum section thickness that you can reconstruct with a 0.6 millimeter detector thickness? And for the most part, you cannot reconstruct um, less, than the less than the thickness of the detector with, with most scanners. Um, with, with some of the newer scanners, there, there is evolving technology that will enable you to reconstruct even thinner, but for the most part, the detector thickness dictates the thinnest sections that you can create. Moving on to IV contrast. So there are a range of different iodine concentrations, and the standard volume that we use has been in the range of 80 to 120 mLs. With faster scanners and depending on the anatomic coverage, we can reduce the dose in some cases if we're just imaging a, a, a small area of anatomic coverage or in a smaller patient. We take into consideration the patient's BMI when we determine how much contrast to administer. Infusion rates have increased with each advance in scanner technology because of the speed of the scanner. We now infuse contrast very quickly to accommodate the narrow window of data acquisition. And rates were traditionally um, at the upper limits of, nor of, of what was used was about 5 mLs per second. But we now actually will infuse 5, 6, 7, even 8 mLs per second for coronary studies in large patients. Um, in, in some exceptions, we will use very high contrast infusion rates to maximize the contrast enhancement level if the patient has adequate venous access to accommodate this, of course. The concentrations that, that, um, that we have available to us, we have lower concentrations and then um, high concentration. And the low concentrations that we use in practice for the most part are 300 to 320, whereas high concentration 350 to 370 uh, there's really not any significant difference between the high contrast agents, but it is important to recognize that when you're performing vascular imaging, the high concentration agents, 350 to 370, will improve the enhancement level, especially for arterial imaging. So they are very, very important to be using for vascular imaging. The iodine load can be modified by increasing the concentration or increasing the volume. And iodine load is extremely important when you're imaging the solid organs, and in particular the liver. So as the scanners have gotten faster, there have been um, protocol 
changes to reduce the volume of contrast because you certainly don't want to be infusing contrast after the scan is completed now that the scans are so fast but you must recognize that for hepatic imaging if you reduce the iodine load too low you will limit your ability to identify liver lesions um, so you must maintain an adequate iodine load either by increasing the concentration or delivering a higher volume at a high rate so um, this was demonstrated in, in a study done by Hyken in radiology that showed this was with conventional CT but the results are very important and they still um, they still apply today even with faster scanners the iodine load will directly affect the conspicuity of liver lesions both hypovascular liver myths and hypervascular liver lesions using the conventional scanner the the uh, minimum iodine load that was recommended was 521 mg's of iodine per kilogram um, our resolution is certainly better with the newest scanners and and uh, it may not be that this high of an iodine load is necessary but it is really important to recognize that if you are reducing your volume of a low uh, um, low concentration contrast you may not be delivering enough iodine to adequately visualize liver metastases so just for an example if you use 300 concentration of 300 and you're only giving 80 mls you can see how low the iodine load is relative to 120 mls and so just keep this in mind in designing your IV contrast infusion protocols for vascular imaging aorta PE you can definitely reduce the dose and you will still have adequate enhancement of even the small arteries but for hepatic imaging iodine load is is just essential this applies also for hepatocellular carcinoma imaging so for hypovascular metastases such as colon cancer the goal is to maximize the hepatic enhancement level so that you can discriminate the lesions that are not enhancing as much as the background liver parenchyma and we we set the timing to be at least 60 seconds from when we infuse the contrast during the venous phase for hypervascular lesions like hepatocellular carcinoma the principle still holds but the difference is that you are enhancing the lesion in the arterial phase before the liver has enhanced and to again maximizing hepatocellular carcinoma conspicuity requires an adequate iodine load in this paper that was also that was published in AJR where they looked at how iodine load affected the ability to depict hepatocellular carcinoma you can see that the higher iodine load was associated with excellent discrimination and conspicuity so another um, thing to remember whether it's hypervascular or hypovascular liver lesions the iodine load is critical the contrast infusion rate as I mentioned we target greater than 5 mLs for vascular imaging, pulmonary embolism imaging, 4 to 5 mLs per second, and coronary studies we may infuse even faster in large patients with very good IV access. Venous access, when you're performing studies, standard catheters use range from 24 gauge to 18 gauge, depending on the patient's uh, the, the quality of their veins and um, what, the, what the vein can accommodate 
in the oncology patients, we may have to use a very small catheter and use a small infusion rate because we are doing our best to avoid contrast extravasation. An 18-gauge catheter is ideal for CT angiography. That would be our, our optimal gauge. And infusing contrast at 5 mLs per second really requires at least a 20-gauge catheter because the risk of contrast extravasation increases when you infuse the agent at a rate that is too high for the catheter gauge. And it's really important to know um, what, what the upper limit infusion rate is that you can use for depending on the catheter size. There's been some research done on catheter gauge and most of the existing studies that have evaluated the safety of peripheral catheters for IV contrast administration in CT looked at single end hole catheters, but there are newer fenestrated catheters with side and end holes that enable infusion of contrast at higher rates than single end hole catheters. These were designed um, with the understanding of data from computational models and phantoms that showed that fenestrated catheters are subject to lower shear forces, reduced wall shear stress, and these factors are all uh, factors that contribute to the increased risk of venous rupture and contrast extravasation. So with a fenestrated catheter, you get lower pressure drop across the catheter, more uniform radial velocities, and more uniform flow through each of the holes where there are a few side holes as well as an end hole. What this translates to, translates to for, for body CT imaging is that you can use a higher infusion rate with a fenestrated catheter than you traditionally used for a single end hole catheter. For example, with a 22 gauge fenestrated catheter, you can infuse at more than 5 mLs per second, a rate that you would not have done that would, that would risk extravasation with a single end hole catheter. Okay, moving on to acquisition timing. There are three ways that we can time the scan, either using a fixed delay, bolus tracking, or a test bolus technique. The, uh, we use test bolus technique primarily for coronary imaging. We use bolus tracking for all of our other vascular work. And the risk of a fixed delay, for example, a 25-second arterial delay would be fine in a young patient with normal cardiac function, but in any patient with cardiac dysfunction, a fixed delay is risky because the contrast may not be delivered to the arterial system by the time you perform the scan. There are also pitfalls using bolus tracking. If the region of interest tracker is, is placed in, the, in a region of calcification, or if the patient breathes and moves the tracker from the time that the technologist places it to the time the scan is, is initiated, um, if the wrong trigger is used, or if there's streak artifact from dense veins that contributes to the density measurements being obtained by the tracker. And then one of the pitfalls that we see commonly with PE imaging is that if a pulmonary embolism imaging if, if a patient valsalvas. So it, a bolus tracking is not guaranteed to perform to result in a perfect scan, but it's important to try and avoid these pitfalls so that we can optimize arterial enhancement level. So let's discuss the different timings that are used for abdominal imaging. These include early arterial, late arterial, venous, and delayed acquisitions. The early arterial scan is primarily reserved for CT angiography. This, um, it is also the arterial component of a renal scan which we refer to as the corticomedullary phase, but 
Um, the early arterial acquisition, which is about 20 to 25 seconds from the time that the contrast infusion is, is initiated, has not been shown to increase our ability to detect hepatocellular carcinoma or, or pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. The, these vascular tumors are really best visualized during the late arterial phase. So the timing is approximately 25 seconds. As I mentioned, test bolus technique is very important for coronary imaging where timing must be really as accurate as possible. Um, for, for aortic imaging and, and the arterial branches of the aorta, we will use bolus tracking and depending on how fast your scanner is, you may use a trigger of 230 Hounsfield units with a 64 slice scanner. We can trigger a little bit later with, a, with the faster scanners because the scan is so quick. The, the window of data acquisition is so short that we capture the data during the peak of arterial enhancement. Here's a nice example showing the risk of an early arterial acquisition, acquisition timed with a fixed delay in this patient who is undergoing imaging of the kidneys. So the first scan performed at 25 seconds with a fixed delay. You can see that there's contrast in the aorta, but there is almost no contrast in the kidney. And the corticomedullary phase, we should be seeing contrast in the renal cortex, but not necessarily in the medulla. At the 60-second scan, we actually see an image that looks like a corticomedullary timed image, where the contrast has now reached the cortex of the kidneys. And the, the critical difference between these two studies is that on the first scan, we are not recognizing that that cyst coming off the kidney is actually a cystic renal cell carcinoma with a small enhancing nodule. So this is the risk of a fixed delay. This is a study that should be performed with bolus tracking in any kind of patient with cardiac dysfunction to make sure that the timing is accurate. As I mentioned, early arterial imaging is, is what we use for CT angiography, and we, um, in our practice, we do dedicated interactive 3D rendering on all of the vascular studies, and these, this technique, the post-processing in the 3D lab is, in our experience, essential for identifying really subtle arterial pathology, small aneurysms and stenoses and is really best practice. So here's a nice example of a patient with a renal artery aneurysm that could be easily missed on the axial image, but is, is clearly seen very well on the 3D coronal volume rendered image on the right. This patient had vasculitis, and we have coronal and axial images, the coronal image from a venous phase, the axial image from a delayed phase, and we can see the findings of vasculitis with areas of bands of decreased enhancement in both kidneys. Um, but what we don't appreciate on either of these types of images, and you won't even, you will not be able to see with MPRs, is um, what is really well demonstrated by a MIP rendering and that is many small aneurysms and areas of vascular stenosis in this patient with vasculitis. You can see small aneurysms in the liver, small aneurysms in the kidneys. So there's so much more information that can be extracted from the data set by using these post-processing techniques for vascular imaging. One of the pitfalls of vascular, of arterial imaging is that 
despite using the correct methods for timing the scan, arterial enhancement may be insufficient. So this occurs in the setting of giant aortic aneurysms, large pseudoaneurysms, or in an aortic dissection, the false lumen may not enhance during the arterial phase just because of slow flow. So in, in all of these pathologic settings, slow flow may result in a lack of enhancement that can mimic thrombus. Um, and in some cases, if you have a large aortic aneurysm, for example, active bleeding may not be apparent until a late arterial or venous phase because that is the time that the aneurysm has filled with contrast. I'll show you a couple examples. This is a patient with a giant right coronary artery aneurysm. On these axial images, the aneurysm appears to be thrombosed. You can see that the right coronary artery actually is, is not enhancing. Um, and so it appears as if the aneurysm is completely thrombosed. However, the patient underwent a venous phase study several days later to evaluate the adrenal glands. And in the venous phase, the aneurysm is completely perfused. So this is a pitfall of early imaging, of arterial, early arterial imaging in the setting of a large aneurysm. If you look closely at the previous arterial phase study, you will recognize that there's heterogeneity within that aneurysm, which is reflecting some early filling of the aneurysm. And this can help you to avoid the pitfall if you carefully inspect large aneurysms in this setting. So moving on to the late arterial phase, this is approximately 35 to 45 seconds. After contrast, infusion is initiated, and it, this is the timing that is optimal for identifying paticellular carcinoma, hypervascular liver metastases, and this is the pancreatic phase of a, of a pancreatic protocol, which, um, which will, you can use for either adenocarcinoma or neuroendocrine tumors. The standard venous phase begins at 60 seconds from initiating contrast infusion. This is the timing that is used for all hypovascular hepatic liver lesions. It's part of the pancreatic protocol. It's the second acquisition of a two-phase acquisition. This is the nephrographic phase of a, of a three- or four-phase renal protocol. And this is the timing that's used for your routine abdominal imaging, abdominal pain, roll-out appendicitis, diverticulitis, just a single venous phase acquisition. There are some specialized applications when we may modify the timing. 60 to 80 seconds is ideal for hepatic and abdominal veins. However, if you're imaging the inferior vena cava, you may want to wait 70 to 90 seconds, and the lower extremity veins require a delay of a approximately 120 seconds in order for these veins to opacify and avoid mixing artifacts. A couple pearls that I like to include in this um, when we discuss the venous acquisition is that the superior mesenteric vein almost always appears thrombosed on an arterial phase scan, even a late arterial phase, because of admixing, admixing of some of the un unenhanced smaller mesenteric veins. And so Evaluating the SMV, you must have a really good venous phase, at least 60 seconds uh, delay. Another pitfall is that varices in the setting of portal hypertension will look like a soft tissue mass on the arterial phase, but enhance on the venous phase, enabling this distinction. So here's a nice example of SMA, I'm sorry, SMV pseudothrombus on the arterial phase image on the left, and the vein is completely opacified in the venous phase image on the right. In comparison, a patient with a true SMV thrombus 
um, shown on the Venus phase here that the segment of decreased enhancement persists on the later acquisition. Varices are identified in portal hypertension, patients with cirrhosis. They can be seen in patients with portal vein or splenic vein occlusion, either in the retroperitoneum or in the wall of the esophagus or the stomach. And important to recognize that on arterial phase, they look like a soft tissue mass. You must have a good venous phase to show the enhancement in these large venous structures. The last timing is the delayed acquisition, and we vary the timing depending on the indication. We will use a five-minute delay for a CT urogram. If you wait longer than that, the contrast becomes very dense in the collecting system, and beam-hardening artifact may limit your ability to see small transitional cell carcinomas. The adrenal timing, the adrenal delay that we use for our adrenal washout is 15 minutes. And hepatocellular cancer imaging, there are protocols are really variable depending on the prevalence of HCC in the population being imaged, and some, some uh, will use a delayed acquisition. So now that we've reviewed all the different timings, how do we optimize our protocol design? Well, we have to select the right set of acquisitions for the clinical indication. We have to balance maximizing lesion conspicuity with limiting radiation dose. So routinely imaging patients with three or four acquisitions is, is, is not what we should be doing. In, in the early days of CT, a, a pre-contrast or a delayed acquisition was part of your routine protocol. This should not be part of your routine protocol in current practice. You should only be using pre-contrast and delayed acquisitions for indications where they are, have been shown in the literature to improve your ability to identify the pathology in question. Every acquisition increases the radiation dose substantially. So um, there are papers that are published that can provide guidance for this, some review articles and such, and keeping in mind that we reserve two-phase acquisitions for some hepatic and pancreatic indications, three-phase adrenal imaging, and four-phase really is, is used primarily for renal imaging in the setting of hematuria. So basic question, when do I need a non-contrast CT in a patient who's getting IV contrast? And the answer, not often. You should not be performing these in hepatic and pancreatic CT. We use non-contrast for, we'll use it in isolation for a lung nodule follow-up. You may use it in acute chest pain to rule out intramural hematoma with an IV contrast scan. It is part of the endoluminal stent protocol, which I will discuss. It's part of the, of course, the adrenal protocol. If you do a non-contrast CT and the lesion is less than 10 Hounsfield units, then there's no need for IV contrast. Uh, it's very important in the setting of hematuria or characterizing a renal mass. And an isolated non-contrast CT, of course, is the renal stone protocol. So um, a just a mention about acute chest pain and, and what protocol we would use in this setting. A gated study is really very important if if, a, if there's a suspicion for thoracic aortic dissection to avoid the pitfall of cardiac motion artifact in the aortic root and ascending aorta, and a pre-contrast acquisition is also very helpful to identify intramural hematoma, which is seen much more easily without contrast. Once contrast is administered, an intramural hematoma looks a lot like mural thrombus. 
pre-contrast acquisition, as I mentioned, after aortic root repair and after um, endovascular stent repair. And for either of these, um, the principle is that calcification and surgical material is difficult to distinguish from an endo leak unless you have a pre-contrast scan. And the, we um, th three acquisitions are advocated because some endo leaks will be more conspicuous or only visualized on the venous phase. So this is one of the indications for performing pre-contrast arterial and venous acquisitions. Here's a nice example of um, a pre-contrast and arterial phase imaging in a patient with an endovascular stent showing that the high-density material in the aneurysm sac is just calcification as opposed to an endo leak. The pre-contrast acquisition, part of the adrenal protocol, as I discussed in the adrenal lecture, because we can discriminate um, a lipid-rich adenoma using a 10 Hounsfield unit threshold. In a patient following aortic root repair, the pre-contrast acquisition on the first post-op study is very helpful to distinguish small um, surgical pledgets from small pseudoaneurysms. And a nice example of the utility of non-contrast in imaging adenoma. When do I need arterial and venous phase? As I mentioned, liver and pancreatic proto protocol, you'll need both of these after aortic root repair. We use arterial and venous for mesenteric imaging, whether it's small bowel obstruction, mesenteric ischemia, GI bleeding, very important to identify active bleeding. We'll do both arterial and venous as part of a three or four phase renal protocol also for imaging pheochromocytoma and other large tumors such as adrenocortical carcinoma, preoperative planning. So let's talk a little bit more detail about tailored protocols, starting with liver, pancreas. We'll, we'll go through liver, pancreas, and kidneys for this. And starting with liver, really hypo and hypervascular masses, um, it will, the indication will uh, direct whether you need one or two acquisitions. So if it's hypovascular metastases, and I'll, I'll list those in a minute, we really only need a single venous phase acquisition. Patients with lymphoma or suspected liver abscess. We use dual phase, um, on the other hand, for patients who have suspected hypervascular metastases, hepatocellular carcinoma, cholangiocarcinoma, or vascular pathology. The hypovascular Primary tumors include colorectal, pancreatic, gastric, lung, ovarian, melanoma, breast cancer. All of these indications only require a single venous phase acquisition. As shown in this case, the reason that we have to wait the 60 seconds is for the liver to maximally enhance because on the arterial phase, you will not be able to see the small hypovascular lesions. You have to have the entire, the liver uh, maximally enhanced to discriminate the small areas of decreased enhancement. The hypervascular liver masses are a different set of pathologies including neuroendocrine tumors, carcinoid tumor, renal cell, thyroid, um, melanoma, some do advocate arterial phase and venous phase for melanoma, and then the primary liver tumors hepatocellular carcinoma, adenoma, hemangioma, FNH. We do two-phase imaging for those primary, suspected primary liver lesions as well. 
Ideally, the timing is late arterial and venous phase, and the principle in this case, as I discussed earlier, is that you're enhancing the tumor before the liver has maximally enhanced during the arterial phase, and the lesions are hyper-enhancing. Another example of hyper-enhancing metastases seen better, best on the arterial phase, and in this third case, on a delayed acquisition, the lesions are completely iso-attenuating to the liver. So timing is critical. Hepatocellular carcinoma, various protocols are used. Some advocate as many as four acquisitions. We just do arterial and venous phase imaging. And as you can see in this case, the arterial phase is really critical for many of these lesions because that is when they are most conspicuous in the cirrhotic liver. The pancreatic adenocarcinoma protocol includes a late arterial phase, also known as the pancreatic phase, and a venous phase. In this paper by McNulty, published in Radiology in 2001, it was shown that adenocarcinoma of the pancreas is most conspicuous on the portal venous phase, but we also include an arterial phase because we know that staging of, adeno of pancreatic adenocarcinoma requires a determination of whether there's vascular encasement. But with respect to the tumor conspicuity, the principle of pancreatic imaging for adenocarcinoma is that similar to hypovascular liver lesions, we want to enhance the pancreas to be able to discriminate the tumor, which does not show a high level of enhancement. So on this example, the arterial phase, the pancreas is enhanced to only 86 Hounsfield units, whereas the tumor is 35 Hounsfield units. On the venous phase, when the pancreas has enhanced to 115 Hounsfield units, and the tumor has only enhanced slightly to 40 Hounsfield units, it is much better discriminated. This is typical for pancreatic adenocarcinoma. It's a tumor with a lot of fibrosis, and it is not a very vascular lesion. On the other hand, pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors are typically hypervascular. However, they may be seen better on the arterial or the venous acquisition. And although I won't um, get into a discussion of this, there are some neuroendocrine tumors can have cystic components, which of course will be low density. But for the smaller homogeneously vascular lesions, remember that you have to look closely on both arterial and venous phase. Here's an example of a, of a small pancreatic tail, peanut seen best on the arterial phase. But here's one that is not visualized at all on the arterial phase in the pancreatic head and only becomes um, identifiable on the venous phase. Another patient with a lesion seen much better on the venous phase. So these, these vary in the timing of their peak enhancement level, even though they are hyper-enhancing. Moving on to the renal protocol, this is, a, this is one area of imaging where as many as four acquisitions are warranted, particularly in patients with hematuria who are undergoing their first scan, or a patient with a renal lesion that requires additional characterization. So the timing is pre-contrast, arterial or corticomedullary, venous or nephrographic, and then the delayed urogram. There were a number of papers that were published in the late 90s that showed that for most renal masses, the nephrographic phase is the most sensitive. However, a lot of work that has been done since then has shown that depending on the histologic type of renal cell, whether it's a clear cell or conventional renal cell carcinoma, which is the very vascular tumor, or whether it's papillary or chromophobe, and those two tend to be hypovascular, 
their conspicuity will vary. So multiple acquisitions are warranted not only for lesion detection, but also for lesion characterization in renal cell carcinoma. Ident determining that a lesion is most likely a conventional or clear cell renal cell carcinoma will, will affect the patient's management. Um, so we want to look at the patterns of enhancement and in, in our interpretation, give our impression of what we think most likely the pathology is, what type of renal cell carcinoma. Here's an example of a renal cell carcinoma that is seen best on the nephrographic phase. Some of these lesions that are confined to the renal cortex and enhanced like the renal cortex can be very subtle on the corticomedullary phase. Another example of a lesion where the, the lesion itself actually mimics cortex and medulla on the corticomedullary phase, but is more conspicuous on the nephrographic phase. These small masses are, can be easily missed if you're, if you're not looking very closely. Um, and one thing that is very helpful, of course, are the coronal multiplanar reconstructions. In this case, this is a nice example, actually, of a tumor that's seen better on the corticomedullary phase in a clear cell variant of renal cell carcinoma, which became almost isodense on the nephrographic phase. I show this case as a really unusual example of a renal cell carcinoma where um, it was visible on the delayed acquisition. So it's really important when you're reading a four-phase renal study to be sure that you look at all four acquisitions, you may not appreciate the mass until the delayed phase. When you see a lesion that is best seen on the delayed phase and you have not seen it very well on the earlier phases, then you really have to be concerned because it's clearly not a cyst. Um, and in this case, it was not well seen on the nephrographic phase, but when you went back and you compared this area, this was an, a brightly enhancing mass on the corticomedullary phase that would have been missed had we not had the delayed acquisition. So an important principle in evaluating kidneys in a patient with hematuria. Transitional cell carcinoma, when they're small, they can be very subtle, but they can be identified on a corticomedullary or even a nephrographic phase acquisition. So look very closely because the principle is that the renal pelvis should be fluid density. If you see soft tissue density in a renal pelvis, calyx, ureter, bladder, then you have to be concerned about a small transitional cell carcinoma. And as you can see in this case, it's well seen on the delayed acquisition, but you could also appreciate on the corticomedullary phase that there is soft tissue, enhancing soft tissue in that renal pelvis. So that is the overview of the different timings that should be used for imaging of those abdominal organs, and I'd like to move on to just to talk briefly about reconstruction sections because there are certain indications where you should be using really narrow reconstruction sections to maximize your ability to identify a pathology. And the standard reconstruction sections that we use, three millimeters in the chest, um, three millimeters for some of our abdominal imaging or five millimeters, but for a, a subset of these, um, we, will, we actually rely on even thinner sections. Just as an aside, with every study that we do, the technologist generates a narrow um, reconstruction section volume using 0.75 by 0.5, or if, if the scan was performed with the thicker detectors, it'll be slightly thicker, 1.5 millimeter sections overlapping again. And this is sent to the PACs so that we can do 
interactive multiplanar reconstructions if necessary or so that we can just look at the narrow sections that we will use routinely for PE imaging. So um, it, it's very helpful. This volume is also used for all of the 3D rendering sent to the 3D lab. So as I mentioned, the standard reconstruction section is three to five millimeters. Um, the thinner sections will improve the resolution but result in a higher noise level and overlapping reconstructions will improve your spatial resolution. When do we really need thin reconstruction sections? These are four of the indications. Pulmonary embolism imaging. At the present time, using current generation scanners, standard of care is to reconstruct at less than one millimeter sections. Otherwise, you will not be able to see small pulmonary emboli. So we, we use the 0.75 millimeter volume to look at all patients with suspected pulmonary embolism. Thin reconstruction sections have been shown to be critical for identifying the appendix and, and for diagnostic confidence in the setting of suspected appendicitis. It's also important for, for identifying small renal calculi or in the setting of an endoleak. There is literature showing that endoleaks may not be identified if you're using five millimeter reconstruction sections. Three millimeters really should be used. So here's a patient with um, an unsuspected pulmonary embolism. As I said, in all of our patients, we have thin sections that enable us to look at the pulmonary arteries, but you can see that the, the PE is much better visualized on the 0.75 millimeter sections in the right lower lobe. Renal stones, small renal stones are best seen on thin sections. So one could argue, what is the risk of missing a small renal stone? And I'm, I will show you actually, um, it can affect patient management. For the first uh, situation would be young patient with hematuria, small renal stone is has, there's a very lot high likelihood that that's the cause and if you find it then you've answered the question but if you if you miss it then then the patient is still presumably undiagnosed so look with thin sections for all cases of hematuria and use both axial sections and NPRs renal stones are more conspicuous on the coronal NPR than they are on the axial sections so here's a patient with um, Prostate cancer and left-sided hydronephrosis, which I initially presumed was related to the prostate mass adjacent to the bladder, but um, on the thick sections, I did not appreciate that there was a tiny stone in the distal ureter that became apparent only on the thin sections. And with the coronal NPR, so this completely changed the patient's management. This, a, a small stone as the cause is, um, of, the, of the hydronephrosis as opposed to the patient's bladder mass. Um, so this, this just is a really nice example of the importance of thin sections to identify small stones. Last thing I like to talk about is the importance of, of your CT display. And axial sections are still the standard of care for all indications, but we perform multiplanar reconstructions on every patient we scan both coronal and sagittal and for every acquisition so for arterial for venous for delayed we have axial coronal and sagittal reconstructions um, I've talked a, a bit about 3d rendering at a freestanding workstation all of our 3d rendering is performed by an experienced radiologist at the workstation that's the optimal way to perform 3d rendering um, 
as opposed to just generating static images. It should be done interactively. But with respect to NPRs, uh, it is really critical to understand that they should be generated from the narrow reconstruction sections, and I'll show you why. I see seen cases on the on the outside where the NPRs are reconstructed from three millimeter sections. The quality is just not adequate. Look at the difference. The image on the left was generated with thick sections. The image on the right was generated from the thin sections, and you can see how much better the resolution is whether it's for soft tissue or for skeletal imaging. Again, the image on the left from the thin sections and on the right, I'm sorry, on the left from the thick sections and on the right from the thin sections, the resolution is far superior using the thin sections. And this is how NPR should be performed at the scanner. NPRs have proven utility in the literature for a number, for identifying a number of different pathologies. These include spine, vascular, renal masses, gastric masses, small bowel obstruction, appendicitis, and of course NPRs are a critical component of CT colonography. So when you're inspecting the sagittal and coronal images, the sagittal image is most helpful for evaluating the spine, the celiac and superior mesenteric artery origins, and the female pelvis. The coronal images are very important for identifying renal masses and renal stones, gastric masses, small bowel obstruction. The coronal is very helpful for the mesentery. Coronal imaging is the best way to evaluate the common bile duct, the gallbladder, uh, the appendix, and then also the bladder, the urinary bladder. This is how you'll find small transitional cell carcinomas that are unsuspected. Just a couple examples, patient with a spine fracture that is just not identifiable on the axial image, but clearly there's a compression fracture on the sagittal NPR. Patient with, with superior mesenteric artery narrowing cannot be identified on the axial image, and celiac and SMA are really very difficult to evaluate on the axials, should always be inspected on the coronals. Patient with a distal superior mesenteric artery thrombus, if you just look at the SMA on the axials, this is probably as far as the standard um, inspection, uh, unless you're really carefully inspecting for a clot, and the artery looks normal, except for there's a thrombus slightly lower. This is a difficult diagnosis to make on axial images, but it is so clear on the sagittal NPR. So any patient, tell the residents, any patient at night with abdominal pain, you look very clear, closely at that superior mesenteric artery. Superior mesenteric artery thrombus is a life-threatening um, acute finding that can lead to bowel infarction. Kidney masses can be missed on the axial images if they're exophytic from the upper pole or from the lower pole, as in this case. So um, even with a non-contrast study, looking at the coronal NPR may disclose a renal mass that you did not appreciate on the axial images. Gastric cancer is another that is best, often best appreciated on an NPR, as in this case, the gastric fundus. It's a tough area, but clearly on the coronal NPR, there is abnormal thickening with mucosal enhancement. Another small gastric mass that I, I think could be easily missed on the axial images, but is um, really very conspicuous on the coronal NPR. The coronals are also helpful for distinguishing tumors that look like gastric masses, as in this case, large mass that looks like it's arising from the wall of the stomach, 
and was presumed to be a GIST tumor, was actually a large hemangioma arising from the left lobe of the liver, seen best on the coronal MPR. Common bile duct, as I mentioned in the gallbladder talk, small bile duct stones are really better visualized on the coronal MPR. Appendicitis is an area where coronal imaging is really standard of care for identifying the appendix and for identifying the findings of appendicitis. Here's a patient with appendicitis within a right inguinal hernia on the axial images. Just it's, There's clearly some inflammatory process in the inguinal ring, but on the coronal MPR you can see clearly that's a large, thickened, dilated appendix with an appendicolith, and uh, the diagnosis is made much more easily with the coronal image. So in conclusion, um, keep in mind all of these important components of protocol design from selecting the detector thickness to your reconstruction sections to um, the timing that you use and knowing the phase that is most important for lesion conspicuity but also um, considering patient safety and limiting radiation exposure by not performing acquisitions that really don't add any additional diagnostic information. Thank you very much for your time.